The following is an exclusive Disruption Network production. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Upgrade, the ultimate brain formula. Smarter, faster, focused, improved performance, increased mental clarity, suppress fatigue, combat stress. Try Upgrade, the ultimate brain formula today. Visit freemanformula.com and use promo code disruption for a 15% discount. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Joey's at 307. Joey's at 307 is the Utica area's best for Italian fine dining. Located at 307 Mohawk Street in East Utica. Enjoy a revolving dinner menu, amazing seafood dishes, classic Utica Italian dishes, lunch specials, catering, and now serving beer and wine. Call them today to reserve a table at 315-864-3527. Joey's at 307. You're going to love it. Support for this podcast is brought to you by BallWash.com. Stay protected from odors and itch. The essential must-have product to keep your crotch fresh. Feeling good and smelling great throughout the day and throughout your workouts. Remember, guys, the fun doesn't have to stop in the shower. Get the funk off your junk. Use the promo code members only and get 15% off all your sales. Use promo code members only for 15% off. Again, that's ballwash.com. Members only for promo code for 15% off. Show. We have a lot of fun on yes. the show. Speak for yourself, <laughs> Justin. What's up, everybody? It's Local Music Monday. We're live and direct on Disruption Network, the D. You can catch us on Twitch. You can catch us on YouTube. You can find us live on Facebook. Share, smash that like button, do all that social media lingo that you know that you guys do, all you kids, and I don't know. I don't know what any of that legal means. In the, in the Facebram or the yeah. Instabook? Snap talk. <laughs> Snap talk. Yeah. Tick chat. Tick chat. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, shout out to my Sponsors, thank you to Upgrade Brain Formula. Go to freemanformula.com, use promo code disruption, get yourself a 15% discount. Help up help wake up the brain receptors in your head, people. It really works. I love it. Shout out to Lasting Confidence, where men go for growth. Use promo code disruption for a 15% discount by visiting lastingconfidence.com. Thank you to EJA Moving Services. When you're ready to move and relocate, hit up Eddie and his crew at 315-335-0516, EJAMoving.com. Thank you to my friends over at Joe. Joey's at 307, Utica Coffee, my attorney Dave Longaretta, Saranac. Can't forget about Saranac. In fact, we got to get the beer restocked in the fridge, man. Yeah. We, we, it's got to happen. Although the, although the Utica Coffee today has really kicked me right in the teeth. <sighs> Costa Rica chocolate mocha chocolate so Wham, bam, thank you, man. Holy shit. <laughs> Two sips and he's ready to go. Oh, yeah. Fired <laughs> and, up. And last but certainly not least, thank you to Ballsy. Ballwatch.com. Use promo code members only for a 15% discount. Justin. We are lucky and blessed to have this man on our podcast today, man. He's got a brand new book in the stores right now. You can catch it on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And it's also available like Off Center Records and a couple local places. It all started with a guitar by author and musician, local music icon, icon for sure. I'm going on a record by now, right now, hands down, the greatest musician to ever come out of Utica is on the horn yeah. with us right now, Carmen Carmonica. Thanks for joining us Absolutely. today, Carmen. Cut it out, guys. You're embarrassing me. <laughs> nah, dude. I want a statue in Utica of you somewhere around this town. We need it with a guitar in the hand sitting on a stool or I'm something. Up for, I'm up for a street name after him. Karma Carmonica Boulevard. 
Boom. I love oh, it. That great. It just rolls off the tongue. I you love know? that. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, we don't mean to embarrass. We just, you know, we're, we're fans, you know. Let's just put it that way. Really are. Uh, I remember going back in the 90s, Joe Sweet used to drag me to Tiny's. Not drag me, because after the second time, I was obsessed with oh, going. Sure. And we would go watch <laughs> Carmen play as, in his trio. And just, I would, my mouth would be to the ground the whole time, just rocking it out. And I'm like, why are you in Utica? But I get that answer with this book. Right, exactly. I get that answer with this book. Well, um, did this all start while you were writing stories on Facebook throughout the pandemic? Is that how this whole thing began? Well, I was telling stories even before that, nobody can accuse me of not being a long-winded fool. I just somebody <laughs> asked me a question, and I got a story to exemplify my opinion about it. But in any event, yeah, I did start writing them down, and never with the intention that it would actually turn into a book that you could hold in your hand. I really never thought that was going to happen. But you know, I did post them on Facebook, and I got so many people say just what you said: you should write a book. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I should write a book. Yeah, I should go to the moon too. But. Uh, <laughs> As it turned out, uh, technology, and I was just talking about that, how I'm really kind of a technical dummy, technology came around to a point for anybody that's got something to say and takes the time to write something uh, can get it published, self-published. And uh, it's available, uh, and all of a sudden, there, there's a book. So, yeah, uh, now COVID was the final impetus. Uh, once I was kind of isolated, I had to stop teaching uh, I was seeing too many people every month to be able to really keep myself protected. Uh, and I have COPD, as you can tell by the oxygen tube in my nose. So I'm not a good candidate to get a respiratory illness. And so they said, okay, better stop teaching, go home, isolate until the vaccine comes out. So that's what I did. Now, here I am at home. I'm used to going out every day, talking to people, playing, doing all of this, to coming home and you know, just sitting around. Uh, so I said, well, maybe you should rewrite those stories or start doing that. So that's basically what happened. It took me a good year or so to go over it. And I would send chapters to some of my friends and say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Uh, and the response I got was encouraging. I said, well, it's not bad. You know, maybe you keep doing it. Anyway, I'll clear this up real quick. My friend Bill Warden came out and uh, Bill's a, a wonderful drummer. Most people know him as the anchor at WKTV for many years around here. For sure. Uh, but he, ret he retired from that. But he was the first drummer I ever played with. Yep. So he got me into the scene. I was 14 years old. And I asked him about some questions about that. And uh, he was very helpful. And then his book came out. And so the next question was, how did you get a book? Uh, and he gave me a, a connection. And next thing I know, I was talking to somebody about how to get a book published. So that's what happened. I love it. You talk about back in the day and growing up and being 14 years old with Bill Warden. Back then, who was the guy? Who was the guy that you looked at as the top musician in the area and being like, that's the guy. Like, that is the man right there. Well, if you're talking way, way back, at about 10 or 11 years old, when I would watch TV, there was a show called Ozzy and Harriet. <laughs> and the two kids on there were David Nelson and Ricky Nelson. Ricky became the performer, and he had a guitar player in his band, and I'm going to blank on the name. He was Elvis Presley's guitar player for years and years, and he was the backup musician. I did not identify with Ricky Nelson, you know, cool, good-looking kid playing the guitar and singing. No, it was the guy behind him that mm -hmm. was playing the lead licks. That's the guy I wanted to be. 
And I said, yeah, never mind getting up there and singing Poor Little Fool or whatever he was singing. Listen <laughs> to that guy playing those licks. That's what I wanted to be. So that was the guy. I, I don't, I'll think of his name at some point, probably when the podcast is over. I mean, right. <laughs> Usually that happens like just before you're falling asleep, right? What about locally? Who was the guy locally? Was there anybody locally that was like, that guy has got it? Well, you know, it was a different scene locally. There were a lot of different bands. As I got older, there was a band called Eric and the Chessmen. Eric was a wonderful entertainer. He's a big shot producer now in Los Angeles. You know, Facebook email him every once in a while. And there were other, there were other bands around, uh, the uh, Fran Cosmo's old band was uh, the big hit band at the time, too. Things were a little bit different then. There, was, there were so many bands playing. There, there wasn't, like, you know, today, say, who's the best band? Showtime! You know, there's no question. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I was just not a, expecting that. It was a, a shameless, shameless plug. But, you know, I know, so many, I know so many of the musicians around here, and, you know, I respect all of their efforts, and they all do a wonderful job, and, uh, that's part of this conversation I hope we get to is how in this area we nurture good musicianship, good mm -hmm. performances. We put everything on a level that when I went into the professional world, I was not at all surprised because I had had it in Utica. I yeah. saw how we were here. And so here I was playing with the best musicians in the best venues in the entire world. And it's the same as playing in Utica, even though the surroundings were a little more modest. Sure. The, the uh, concept was there. So, hey, whatever it is in our water, <laughs> whatever yeah. happens. Let's there. keep going. Does uh, James Burton ring a bell? Burton, that's the guy. Yep. Thank you. James Burton. Gotcha. Wait, hey, when do you get to be my age? You'll forget to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've already forgotten everything. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Carmen, I want to expand on what you were just talking about and how we nurture the musicians around here. What do you think it is? You know, you just compared Utica, New York to pretty much every great venue and musician that's out there. What do you think it is about the area? Well, I think it's if you go to hear a band, you're going to hear that quality. And if you care about your playing, you're going to strive for that quality. I can remember from a jazz standpoint, when I wanted to hear a jazz guitar player in Utica, there was one, there was a guy named Gates and Tino, a couple of years older than me, and I must have been 16, he must have been 18. Well, he was playing a jazz gig as what later became the Club Monarch, I don't know what they call it now, but... Still the uh, same, yep. And they, he was up there with a jazz trio, guitar, upright bass, and drums. This is way back uh, you know, in the late 50s, uh, and there was a local guy being able to play a jazz gig. Or you go to Birdland, uh, downtown Utica, and you could hear a jazz organ duo or trio of incredible quality. Uh, same thing with the rock bands. You go to hear uh, Holiday or any of the bands that were around, yeah. uh, and they, all, they were excellent. <laughs> so if you were going to put a band together, that's your standard. you got to get as good as these guys. Otherwise, nobody's going to come and see you. Being that we were on the same line, I think we were talking about this last week, too, with, like, the... The, the train line from Buffalo to Albany, and there was all those those players that would come through, and Utica was like a stop on that. And, yeah. I, I mean, you, you would remember this. I, I mean, I, this would be my question. Did you ever find that, that these, these these people would come in, stop in Utica, and, and immediately look for players? Yeah, I think uh, it was not necessarily stop and see who's there, but they would actually hear about Utica players and recruit them. There is a passage in my book where I talk about how I got out of, I got from being a local musician to suddenly being on the road as a professional. Uh, there was a Syracuse native, Jimmy Cavallo. Jimmy was uh, 
uh, an icon of the 1950s. He made a movie, or as part of a movie, called Rock, Rock, Rock. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, that helped to introduce rock and roll music, uh, then called rhythm and blues, to the, uh, the world and the American public particularly. He had, at this point, later on, this is now the 60s, changed his style to reflect the music that was being listened to. And it was a little bit more uh, varied. On the radio, you could hear a Frank Sinatra song, then you'd hear The Girl from Ipanema, uh, and then you'd hear uh, Run Around Sue. Oh, wow. Uh, on, this, on the same radio station, there was a lot of variety. And so Jimmy would uh, change his show, so instead of just doing rhythm and blues and uh, basic rock and roll, he would appeal to a wider audience. Mm -hmm. So he was putting together a band to, for an East Coast tour. As it so happened, he had an incredible guitarist, I believe the guy's name was John Latosha, that had a reputation of sounding like a full orchestra by himself. Wow. He put a little bass, put a little bass and drums with that, and you know, Jimmy played saxophone, and off you go. Well, while he was putting this band together, uh, John Latosha decided he wasn't going to go on the road again. So Jimmy put the word out, and a friend of mine, a piano player in Utica named John Colenzo, called himself Johnny Cole back then, said, oh, I got just a guy for you. That's just, just what he does. He makes the whole band sound like an orchestra. Here's his name. And so I got a call from Jimmy Cavallo, come down and audition for this gig. So he was looking, and he looked, sure, I'm sure he probably looked in Syracuse, Rochester, Albany, but he definitely looked in Utica because the reputation was a lot of good players come out of there. Mm -hmm. Notably at that time, the Zitos, we had uh, Tori Zito, who became the conductor and orchestrator for Tony Bennett, Ronnie Zito, the drummer for Bobby Darren, and still an amazing studio drummer. He had a brother named Art Zito who played bass, but it, the, the list goes on. A lot of people came out of the Utica area, that, and it was well known. So to answer your question, yeah, did they come in Utica looking for people? They absolutely did. They knew this was a good place to find them. They were trying to steal our guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's mentioned a lot in the book. You can take the boy out of Utica. You can't take the Utica out of the boy. Is there a story right. that you could tell us that's not in the book? Because I don't want to give away a lot of the book, but is there a story you could tell us that's not in the book that exemplifies that statement? One of the first times I left town and uh, found myself in a big city type of situation, I was looking for some present to bring home to my, uh, my wife. And I had only been married for a, about a year when I had to tell her, hey, I got an offer to go on the road, so <laughs> uh, what do you think? Uh, needless to say, she said, well, not too happy about that, but I was looking for some kind of peace offering. So here I am in Baltimore in a very expensive store, and I found a pair of salt shakers, salt and pepper shakers. And of all the choices I picked out, there were two molded ceramic ones, and it, they were two little piggies kind of leaning over one another. It was kind of <laughs> loving and cute. But it was anything but sophisticated. So here I was with these worldly road musicians in a very expensive store picking out a gift for my wife. And what did I pick out was two very farm-like animals to bring her home. And they let me know about it. They, they broke oh, my sure. chops about that for the whole day. So that part of Utica stayed with me. I still have them, by the way. Carmen, I also want to know your Mount Rushmore guitar players. Who would be your Mount Rushmore guitar players? Well, let's see. you got to put them into categories here because, first of all, I love anybody that sincerely has their own voice through their instrument. Mm. That, to me, is 
you know, the, the most important thing. I, love that. Uh, I know there are many people that when I was teaching, I used to tell people there are three steps to musical nirvana as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> There's imitation where you like take somebody's solos or their, how they play and you try to learn it note for note just the way they did it. Then there's emulation, where you kind of got your own ideas, but you play it as if, I want to play this as if I was Stevie Ray Vaughan, or as if I was Wes Montgomery, or whomever. And then finally, we hope, there becomes innovation, where you've got everybody's style kind of figured out, and you're gravitating to the ones that you love, and you've emulated stuff like, like they would do, and now you've got your own ideas on how to do them. So imitation, emulation, innovation. And if you look at that, for example, Joe Bonamassa, you know, people ask me questions about, I had the pleasure of teaching Joe for a few lessons. And I got to say this since I happen to mention this, he walked in that door as Joe Bonamassa. He was 12 years old, but he played like Joe Bonamassa. Uh, and we had some nice sessions, mm. but I don't think anybody can take credit for his uh, success and his style uh, other than him mm. because he just delved into every detail uh, and uh, did a wonderful job developing his own voice. And what I was getting at is there was, when he first started to make it, there was some criticism that, well, he's not really, doesn't have his own voice. He <laughs> sounds like, uh, you know, like Stevie Ray or he sounds like this or sounds like that. His own voice eventually did develop and there's no question now mm. that what he is, who he sounds like, uh, just like Clapton, just like B.B. King. These guys play one note. You know who you're listening to. And uh, Joe is there as well. So yeah, that, I've got to put, yeah. Sorry, that I've was exactly what I was going to say. Now, I mean, if Joe Bonamassa is, comes on the radio, I know it's him just by the first note of playing. And right. it's it's funny because I mean, myself as a guitar player, I'm sure that I could do that with, with many more guitarists than non-guitar players but but for me like the first time that i heard joe on the radio and knew it was joe like you know just by his tone you know what i mean and that, right. I, I like that you mentioned that because that was you know just definitely something that i felt before yeah well us musicians you know i think <clears throat> when we get to the place where you and i have become where music is not part of our personality but maybe all of our personality you know we For sure. we kind of put the rest of it around it you know that becomes increasingly important what does this guy have to say who is he and <laughs> this is why you're playing so you know obviously joe is up there in a jazz category my man is west montgomery played with his thumb played octaves self-taught and died way too young there's always the legends uh i love certain Clapton things that uh, there's nobody that plays like Clapton. Uh, then, of course, we got Jimi Hendrix and we got uh, Jimmy Page. And, you know, it seems like every legend has got something in there that is going to be part of my Mount Rushmore. There's going to mm. be a heck of a lot more than four faces on that mountain. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> I said it'd be a big family portrait. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Carmen, is there a gig that you were offered back in the day that you turned down that you regret? I was uh, on Lou Rawls' gig. I was first hired as a guitar player. Mm -hmm. And then their, uh, uh, their musical director, who was a pianist, was a British guy, Reg Powell. And uh, he was going to move back to England. And uh, he suggested me uh, to be the new musical director. Now, just to fill in the blanks real quick, I never went to music school. And so back in those days, 
when you were a professional in the circuit that people like Lou and Frank Sinatra and uh, whoever else played, you would arrive at a venue and you would come in with your core group of musicians, uh, your guitar, bass, drums, maybe background singers, keyboards, but the hotel or wherever the venue was would then provide you with <coughs> an orchestra. So these were orchestra gigs. So that meant you had anywhere from six to 24 violin, violas, and cellos. Wow. You had uh, <laughs> a, a band that consisted of five saxes, four trombones, four trumpets, a percussion, sometimes a harpist. You had a, so the person uh, that's a musical director in these gigs, he has to write a, musical arrangements to back up the singers that are played by these large orchestras. Now, sometimes you do a self-contained gig with just a rhythm section, but not often. They were you if you were that big to be playing those places, you had to do it for an orchestra. Well, here's a pen and paper. Write me an orchestra chart, you know, for a song. Well, you you know, how do you learn to do that? Well, you go to music school, and you learn how to orchestrate for uh, trumpet and sax, or a guitar trio, or a string quartet, or whatever. I never had any of that experience. I kind of learned. I had some help, a music teacher around here from New Hartford named Chick Esposito, now deceased, helped me a lot by showing me a lot of the ropes and how to do that, but a lot of it was learned by doing. And uh, when I first got the, got the gig, I was, uh, you know, just didn't think I was going to be able to handle it. And uh, they said, no, you can do it. You know, we respect your talent. Uh, just try it out. And if you don't like it, you know, then you can you can go back to being the guitar player. Well, somehow I managed to muddle through it, and uh, I stayed on that gig for four years as musical director. So that was fine. But after I left, uh, I received another phone call from uh, Lou's management. They said, you know, we know you left. You wanted to... The reason why I left, by the way, is my wife and I were getting to the age where if we were going to have a child, we better do it quick mm -hmm. because uh, time was moving along. Bottom line is, they said, we'd like you to come back because Lewis signed up with these two producers, Gamble and Huff, and they had dozens of uh, hit records and big bands, and they're in the Hall of Fame and helping to shape the uh, uh, pop music. Uh, and it said it, it was very likely that Lou was going to get back up to the top, uh, which when I left him, he wasn't on the bottom but he was just kind of falling into that category. Oh yeah, I, rem I remember Lou Rolls. So basically I turned that down because I said, well, no, I've been on the road. My wife and I want to have a child. Uh, we're going to stay here and try to build a local life. Well, sure enough, about a year later, Lou Rolls comes out with You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine. Most people know him for that. They don't know any of the other stuff he ever did, which was all the jazz and blues stuff that I liked, but nonetheless, uh, I could have been back on that gig, making megabucks, flying all over the world, living in the big mansion and all that stuff, because that's kind of what, that's kind of like what happened with the people that he did hire after that. It was not a smart move musically, but uh, when my daughter, Anne Elizabeth Carmonica, was born in 1977, it was the right decision. <laughs> it, made, it, made nice. it made everything worth it. You get a bell sure. on that one, Carmen. Yep, I got one here. <laughs> yeah, you get a bell on that one. Um, I'm glad you brought up the Lou Rolls thing. Can you expand a little bit on what type of man he was? Lou was, it's, uh, I hate to make this joke, but uh, because he had a hit record, 
Uh, Lou was a natural man. That was actually the name of one of the hit records that he had. He was kind of unpretentious. He treated me very well. Uh, He was never full of himself, like, hey, I'm a star. Uh, He never forgot his Chicago roots. Uh, He was uh, very religious, just a natural singer. I mean, he didn't try to sing. He just sang. Uh, And he had an easy groove to him. And he, I, and I would say that playing with him was great for a lot of reasons. One reason was that he gave me a lot of freedom to stretch out. Like in a lot of gigs, uh, you might have a, an eight-bar solo in a song or something like that. Uh, and then you you go back to the money. You know, the guy who's singing is what they're supposed to be watching. A lot of times, you'd just look at me and say, hey, stretch. Go ahead. I like what I'm hearing. This was pretty cool. And you being a jazz guy, you just love taking on the improv, right? Oh, yeah. I love the, the story about your very first gig with Lou Rolls and the airlines get your luggage all mixed up and whatnot. It's, I was laughing to myself. I was like, wow, that was happening even back then. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that was going on. Oh, yeah. Well, not only did they, they lost the luggage, but they all also lost. You have to remember, I'm coming in. I had never played with the band before, mm-hmm. and I'm going to do my first gig with Lou Rolls, and I had, they'd sent me a cassette tape of what the songs were like, so I kind of listened to them. But the arrangements, the music that I was supposed to read was in that luggage. And so when we got there, there was no music to read. And I didn't write anything down. I mean, I just had a cassette. Uh, and we found this out about four hours before I was supposed to go on stage with Lou Rawls for the first time in my life. <sighs> so, yeah, I had to, like, wing it. Uh, and it, luckily, all of those pickup gigs that I played around town, prepared me for that. It's a, oh, we're going to do such and such a song. I said, great. What key? Right. Okay, let's go. And then you just, <laughs> just kind of follow it. And hopefully you've heard some stuff. Uh, or if you can see the bass player, look at his fingers and maybe you can pick out what the next chord might be. So uh, we got through that. All right. Carmen, all that time spending in Vegas and you had a little bit of free time and you learned how to fly. When, <laughs> when yeah, was that, the last time you actually flew a plane? Oh, I think I... Gave it up in 77, about the year that my daughter was born. Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there was a a good reason for that. uh, At that time, I had uh, left the road, and uh, there was really little reason to fly an airplane. Uh, It's not like I had to be anyplace particularly. (laughs) And I was told by uh, an insurance agent that uh, if I wanted to uh, have good insurance for the family, uh, I could not have a pilot's license because uh, they have a lot of uh, defaults in there where you're not allowed to. If you have a pilot's license, certain insurances are not available to you. So it's possible that uh, if you die in an airplane crash, unless you're a ticketed passenger on that particular aircraft, they could deny your coverage. Wow. So that said, okay, so much, so much for that. There are a lot of other reasons, too. I found out uh, one of the reasons why I decided to learn to fly is I was a white-knuckle flyer. When I, I was like uh, 21 years old before I took my first airplane ride. Uh, and for a while, it was fun. And then I started to worry we are going to crash. <laughs> so uh, that can kind of get on your nerves. Uh, at some point, I took a ride in a small plane. And I said, well, you know, this isn't so bad. Maybe... Uh, I should learn how to do this myself. and It'll get rid of my anxiety. So I learned to fly, and the only time we had enough time for me to actually set up lessons, we worked these gigs in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand, where we had 
four weeks in a row in the same place. And we did this about every two or three months. So that gave me enough time to get settled in with a flight school, take lessons and all that. And the good news about Las Vegas back then, a little different now, uh, so crowded, but if you lose an engine, you could just kind of look around and not too far away, there'd be a big patch of desert where you could put it down. And if you lose an engine around here, you got to pray that there is someplace you can put it down if right. you're not near an airport. <clears throat> and then you've got to watch out for all kinds of stuff, traffic and phone wires. And it's just a, an absolute nightmare flying over populated areas. But back then, you know, Vegas, even though it had almost a million people, it was all kind of combined. And an airplane like that, you could have a glide ratio of 10 to 1. So if you were up a thousand feet, you could glide 10,000 feet and find yourself and you know, as you know, that's almost two miles to find some place to put it down and you're likely to find it. Especially in those desert winds will carry you along too. Right. Oh yeah. Keith James, uh, a very, very, uh, uh, good piano teacher and keyboard player in the area. He is also is a pilot and he commented on our podcast here that he would be happy to take you up again if you're willing <laughs> I've had the offer many times. Uh, For sure. I appreciate it. Thanks, Keith. There's so much um, i got to talk to you about these the people that you've come across throughout your career. Uh, you play in Midnight Special. Did you have any an encounter with Wolfman Jack? Did you have any sort of interaction, or was it just kind of an in-and-out thing with him? Uh, kind of an in-and-out. With, with most of these guys uh, and shows like that, I had the same question when when you're on a gig like that, we did uh, Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, uh, Dinah Shore, you know, the Mandrell sisters, on and on. And in almost all cases, you briefly meet the host of the show. And then the rest of the time, you're in your dressing rooms or in the green room or on stage. So you don't really like hang out with these people having coffee. So, uh, yeah, they, they were all brief encounters. But. Awesome. Just like you had a brief encounter with Michael Jackson. I like that little story, too. That was pretty pretty neat. Yeah, definitely. You got to meet Michael Jackson briefly. Ugh. Yeah, that was kind of fun. What was interesting there is I'm just going, you know, when you're, when you're doing that kind of stuff every day. In fact, I just ha had a, a note from one of my former students telling me that about that same thing. He said, wasn't that cool that you met Michael Jackson? And I responded to him. Uh, yeah, when you do it every day, it's kind of like all in a day's work. Right. Uh, you know it's important, but you don't really think, well, how important uh, it is. And then, you know, 40 years later, you look back and you say, wait a minute, you know, here I am going up to the light booth. I'm going to hand the guy the list of songs we're doing and then say, OK, we know how to like these songs. I get the order so they're not surprised. And you meet Michael Jackson. And that happened to be the year that the Jackson 5 were stopping being the Jackson 5. And Michael was going to go off on his own. So that was a very significant time in his life. And he was just a, a kid. He was, I don't know, was yeah. 14, 15, whatever he was. And a very nice, respectful kid. He was a fun little thing. He stumbled over my name, trying to pronounce it, shook my hand, <laughs> and told me he was a big fan of Lou Rawls. Oh, that, that, that's nice. So I said, okay, well, here you go. I'm a good scene. You enjoy the show. And now I'm walking back to the, back to the stage and thinking, oh, yeah, nice kid. Yeah, yeah, Michael Jackson. Uh, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. I just met Michael Jackson. <laughs> and it suddenly dawned on me who I had just met. So if I had remembered, if I had thought about it back then, of all of these amazing experiences that I was having and putting him in perspective to what life is about, I'm glad now at least I can look back at it and say that was pretty significant stuff. 
Uh, I don't take it for granted. I feel like I'm very blessed and very lucky uh, to have had those experiences. I imagine it was a frequent occurrence of people tripping over your last name, being out on the road. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Ended up with, uh, well, some some people took a, uh, made it it into a joke. (laughs) I remember we did a telethon for for St. Jude's, and Danny Thomas was the host of that. Uh, And after the telethon, there was a banquet for everybody that participated. Uh, And so there was a line, and we're going through the line meeting Danny Thomas. He wanted to personally thank each and every one of us. Uh, And he had a list in front of him. So when I came up to him, uh, extended my hand, he looked down at the list, and he said in all of his comic style, Carmen Harmonica? (laughs) And... I wasn't sharp enough to realize you were making a joke. And I said, oh, uh, no, sir, it's, it's Carmonica. He says, I know, but Carmonica is not funny. Harmonica is funny. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you ever think about, like, because a lot of uh, people with long last names, especially Italian-Americans, were shortening their names when they were on the road, when they were, you know, on tour, when they were doing this, doing that. Like, a lot of people shortened their, their last names to make them more Americanized, easier to pronounce. Did you ever think to do that back then, or? Well, not really. Again, I wasn't ever interested in being in the, in the spotlight or having people, like, particularly remember our name. It wasn't until later when, uh, in the 80s, when every guitar player and their brother seemed to be able to come out with an album. Uh, right. And then I thought, well, this is great. Well, you know, I'd, uh, I'd like to do that. And I came very close in the book. There's a story about how an agent, uh, not an agent, it was an A&R guy uh, from Concord Records, which is a, a jazz label out of California. I don't know if they're still around, but uh, they were putting out a lot of guitar jazz. And he had come to see a Lou Rawls show. Uh, and he thought there might be a possibility of getting a, uh, an album made with me. So he set up a whole thing, and uh, I was supposed to uh, go to L.A. and uh, cut a demo with a, a studio band. And uh, so when I called to verify the date, a receptionist said that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't available. After a little more digging, he found that he had left the record label, and they wouldn't give me any information on him. And the only number I had for him was the record label number. So that never happened. But uh, even at that point, it would have been foolish to like ch- try to change my name. Say, you know, if you're going to have a, a, your own record, why would you want to call it something that isn't you? So now, what I call it through? Carmonica? Carmen, Carmen? Huh? Carmen, Carmen. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, the story that I really loved, too, was uh, you got to play a handful of gigs with Jaco Pistorius. Yes. And what, what was he like? Because I know he, he like, suffered through some mental health issues and he had some bipolar issues. Did you that... catch on to any of that when you were playing with him? Uh, it wasn't until it was too late uh, to do anything about it. Uh, when we first ran into Jocko, he was the bass player for the house orchestra that was provided by the Bachelors Three, And it was obvious that he was a great player. But when he was playing for that band, he played in context. And so there was never any reason to doubt that he would continue to do that. Uh, when our bass player decided he had enough of the road and wanted to go home, uh, I suggested that we get Jocko. Uh, first of all, because we're going to be playing that room, uh, and that'll give us a couple of more weeks to find somebody. Uh, and then Jocko was pretty much ready to move out of the Florida area. 
he had already made connections with the weather report <laughs> and there were rumors that he right. was going to be joining up with them, which eventually he did. But unfortunately, as the book goes on to entail, uh, once he was in the band, uh, he became uh, a little, how should we say this? Ego-driven? Uh, well, I don't know if that was the case or if he really thought that he was improving the music. You know, it, it's, it's hard to say because uh, he went from being a very uh, running barefoot on the beach, drinking pure orange juice kind of guy to uh, being a little bit uh, arrogant. You know, he was talking about, it was overheard him saying that, uh, well, Lou's book isn't very good. He should change these tunes. He really needs some new arrangements. Uh, this is all not happening. And then uh, instead of playing things straight the way it had to be played, he started dressing them up to the point where Lou was singing the ballad one night in Orlando and uh, uh, Jocko was playing so much stuff behind him that Lou got lost. <coughs> He literally lost where he was on the song. And uh, that was the night that they asked me, uh, that Lou asked me to fire him, which I had to do. But uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say. If it, would, it is incredible uh, because he was such a magnificent and talented bass player. Uh, as his history bore out later, he became a terrible, his, his illness got the best of him. For sure. And he was, eventually, he was eventually beaten up and killed because of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does Lou give you the, that's it, <laughs> all done, <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> give him the hook. Uh, man to man, though, Carmen, how hot was Raquel Welch back in the day, man? Wonderful lady. I got nothing <laughs> bad to say about her <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. What was, what was great for all of us, there, there, two of us came out of the Utica area, me and my friend Charles Frittel, mm -hmm. who was just here visiting. That was his first professional gig. I got called to do the gig, and they said, you know, bass player. I said, boy, the guy playing in my trio, he can do it. So we went out together. And then uh, a drummer that used to be on the Wells gig uh, made up the, the rest of us. Bottom line was that Raquel treated us like we were the greatest musicians in the world. Uh, and she was uh, a wonderful hard worker. Uh, mm. She decided that the audience deserved her best efforts, and she was going to give it to them. She put on a heck of a show. I would never thought she did anything prior to that experience. Or just uh, she just another sex symbol, take the money and run. Mm -hmm. But no, she was a good singer, a good dancer, a good performer, and uh, she was really nice, uh, nice to us guys. That's awesome. I can imagine you getting lost in the in the middle of that show, playing music and just. Because she's your front woman, you know, you just kind of get lost. Like, where are we again? You just kind of get lost staring at her, if you will. A <laughs> couple more questions for you, Carmen. And again, we're talking with Carmen Carmonica, who's the author of this book. It all started with a guitar, which you can find on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And also you can find it locally here at Off Center Records. And is there another store you can find it other than Off Center Records locally? Right now it's just Off Center. Okay, cool. Go see our friend John Keller over there, and uh, he'll take great care of you. That's where I got mine. Just you got to support the artist, right? Always got to support the artist. That's why we do this. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Car Carmen, what kind of advice do you give a band that's just starting to tour? Just starting to tour? Yeah, to just to go out on the road and just breaking away from their hometown. Like, what kind of advice would you give a band that's up and coming on tour? Well, I think you've got to have an act together. You've got if if it works at your hometown. It's going to work everywhere. True. So you've got to have an identity. You've got to stick to the identity. You know, it kind of depends on what kind of band you are, too. If you're a cover band uh, and all you're doing is covers, 
then you got to decide who you're going to cover and how you're going to cover them. Uh, if you're an original band, which is, I'm sure, much harder, uh, then you're going to be true to that. and Your choices are a lot uh, limited, a lot more. But I found that uh, if you have a successful formula, no matter what kind of band you're in, you got to believe in that, believe in yourself, uh, and just do your thing. And if people catch on to it, that's fine. And if they don't, you can say, well, I, I, caught, I liked it. Uh, Carmen, if you go back in time, back into the 70s in your heyday when you're conducting Lou Rolls' band, and you could give yourself some advice, what would be the best possible advice you could give yourself back then? Don't get so nervous. <laughs> I would definitely, uh, and, and it, I, I think any performer, you get a little nervous before you're ready to start a gig. Uh, I think that's natural. Uh, a lot of us have ways of controlling it. I would just, about 10 or 15 minutes before a gig, uh, I wouldn't snap at people, but that wasn't the time to talk to me because I was, you know, thinking about things, making sure everything was in order. The result was, okay, after the 15 minutes of, oh, my God, the curtain's going to come up, make sure it's my tie straight. Where, where's my tie? Oh, I'm wearing it. You know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. Uh, once the show started... It was like, this is fine. This is, where I, this is where I live. This is where I need to be. I remember one time, uh, one of the first times I conducted a large orchestra, I was very aware that some of the people in that orchestra were, had backed up many, many famous people. Uh, and they were all very nice and very respectful of me. And I'm looking over my shoulder. I wonder if this guy knows I've never been to, never been to music school. You know, what the heck am I doing up here conducting these guys? And, you know, you worry about stuff like that. I guess that's part of the basic uh, non-confidence that uh, I've always had to deal with. But I think that would be it. I would remind myself, don't get nervous. After the first couple of minutes, you'll be fine. And it always was. No matter how big or how small the gig was, I was always nervous before it. And then a few minutes into it, I was fine. So I guess that's what I do. I tell myself, just chill, man. I had an opportunity to take a lesson from you years ago and uh, when I was living at home and I had a gift certificate and I never made the uh, the appointment to go up and have a lesson with you and I regret that. It's one of my big regrets in life. But what? I know. Uh, I could never afford to get lessons really. Like my like when I was growing up and stuff, like I, I, I really couldn't afford to do it as much as much as I wanted to do it. That might be that was the excuse I was given anyway. So um <laughs> however when I was in uh high school I was able to we did the Hamilton Jazz Festivals. We would go there we were one of the schools that got to go there and um uh the year that uh, the first year that I went was uh, Duffy Jackson was playing. Oh yeah. Um you remember that year and uh the bass the bass player was um oh God, who was the bass player? Upright guy. Was it Keeter? Keeter um uh, Keter Betts, right? Keter Betts? Yes, it yeah. was. It was absolutely Keter Betts. And uh, we all split off, and I was so excited because I finally got to have my lesson with Carmen. And so we all <laughs> sat there, and you did you did the lesson. And uh, I must have done well because the next year we went back in, and you recognized me, and you said, well, you know this lesson. I taught it to you last year. Why don't you teach it to everybody <laughs> this year? And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's I got I was able to do that, which is definitely one of my favorite memories with you. So. I just oh, had to yeah. throw that out. <laughs> but the cool thing is, Anthony was listening to because they they played afterwards, mm-hmm. like after everybody got you know their group lessons and stuff. Like that 
group of guys came out and played together. So you got like all these famous guys playing in front of you and showing you what you know true improvised jazz sounds like and like what it's supposed to you know feel like and stuff and how much of it was so much feel and less of reading the music. You know what I mean? In a sense, you know, it just you know it was awesome to see. So they were very well attended and uh, successful seminars. It's uh, too bad they couldn't keep going. Right. Right. Yeah. As usual, it probably had something to do with funding. I don't know for sure how that whole worked. Yeah, because we, we were we definitely him. loved them. We definitely loved them. I mean, we were Jose, Joe, and I who are still together. We were the rhythm section in our jazz band in high school. That was you know, we were already in a rock band, but they we were we were the jazz band rhythm section. Yeah. So that was really cool. We got to experience all that together. So that's good. You yeah. expand your. Oh, it helped! It helped so much. Yeah. I mean, you know, de- definitely. I was I was just learning how to play lead guitar at the time and teaching myself, obviously. And uh, but learning, like watching Carmen and learning how to improvise, like how you know you got to kind of feel your way around it. But it was all about I don't know. I I feel like that when you improvise, it's about like you said, finding your own voice and feeling that the song and feeling your the guitar through your hands, like that whole thing. It sounds cheesy, but it's real. <laughs> That's it is sure. real, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the one thing you could teach theory to your blue in the face, right? But the one thing you can't teach is the groove, the pocket, you know, the no, feel. You can't t- yeah, you can't teach that. That's just if you got it or not, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Carmen, another question I got to ask you, too. The beautiful piece that I took from your whole book is how supportive your wife was throughout all these years. And, you know, honey, I'm going out on this gig. Okay, well, you know, and she was super supportive. How important is it to have a woman to have your back like that? Uh, Couldn't have done it without it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You probably remember the, the chapter called The Gambler. Yes. We're in a supreme... I was going to say moment of weakness, but it was not a moment. It was a long time of weakness uh, where I ended up gambling away the money I was supposed to be bringing home. And I expected her to climb all over me and beat me up and say, you jerk, you got a family to support and you're able to gambling your money away. What's wrong with you? But instead, she said, well, you know, we'll get through this somehow. Uh, and then kissed me on the cheek and said, would you like a cup of coffee? Oh. That was her way of babying me. At that point, I was able to take what could have been a serious gambling addiction and stop it because of her support. If she had done what I thought any woman would have had the right to do, like if they beat me with a baseball bat, uh, (laughs) I probably would have said, well, it's my money. I can do what I want with it. Mm -hmm. Whatever. But all the way through my career, uh, whether I was making good decisions or bad decisions, it was like, okay, I know you've got to do this. Uh, I wish it wasn't true, but you've got to do this. So I'll be here when you get back. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's very important. And I, I also think it's unreasonable for a lot of people to expect that, especially like you know, in my case, when we got married, I was planning to, I was in Utica College, planning to be an English teacher. That was her expectation. She was already teaching second grade. So it was going to be, going to be a couple of teachers in a nice little picket fence house in someplace in South <laughs> Utica or wherever, uh, and living that way. And then all of a sudden, oh, guess what? I'm quitting college, and I'm just going to play and teach. Uh, 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 okay. And then next thing, oh, by the way, I got an offer from this guy from Syracuse who wants to go on the road. We're going to be playing Baltimore in two weeks. Uh, 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 okay. Okay. But each time was like, try it, 
if it doesn't work out, you can always come home. That was the standing, that was the end of all of those conversations. If it doesn't work out, you can always come home. And as you can see, deja vu all over again in the book, that happened again and again and again Mm -hmm. and again. Go on the road, come home. Go on the road, come home. Go on the road, come home. And each time she welcomed me back. And like I say, that's, that to me, is, and you know, I've heard so many stories about people that don't have that kind of support. And you can't blame a woman for not having that. Uh, that, you know, that that's a terrible thing to thrust on them. If they know it going in, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, she didn't know that going in, and I wasn't aware of it myself. So to put a, uh, uh, a period on the thing, yeah, it's very important. Uh, and I was extremely lucky. Just one of the ways I had incredible luck in my life. It's been a blessed life, huh? Yeah. Yeah, the women are speaking out right now on here. <laughs> Joe Town says, that's one hell of a woman. Yeah. And your mom says, God bless your wife. Old school. Yes. Yeah. Old school values, for sure. Yep. Nice, Carmen. Well, I really appreciate you taking this time. I feel like this has been the most important podcast we've ever had. Yeah, for sure. For Local Music Monday. And I mean this when I say this. There needs to be a boulevard named after you somewhere in East Utica. <laughs> the Carmen Caronica Boulevard, Street Road, whatever it's got to be called. We're going to make it happen or a statue or something. <laughs> because you, I am so glad you got to document all these stories, too. Because people need to know, you know. Do you plan on doing a second one? You know, people keep asking me, you should write... A follow-up, because there's a lot more I could have said in a lot of those same stories. I just wanted to keep it to the point and have it flow. Uh, You never know. I might just do a second one. (laughs) Yeah, good. I love it. I see him scheming. He's he's scheming. I see him rubbing his hands. I got something in store. I'm just not going to tell you. (laughs) Well, Carmen, again, thank you so much for taking the time with us to do this podcast. This has been a lot of fun to communicate and talk and converse and tell all these old stories. And if you do another one, please come back and join us, man. And it's been a joy and a pleasure to talk to you. You too. I would like to mention real quick sure. that uh, this Saturday we're having the book signing at uh, Calabria Coffee, 52 Ooh, yeah. Genesee Street, New Hartford. Uh, that's right on the ground floor of the building that my studio has occupied for 26 or 27 years. And if you have a book, bring it in. It's signed. No charge for the signing. <laughs> but we do also have a, a small number of books that we can sell at the reduced price of 10 bucks. If, in case you don't have a book and haven't had a chance to get one, uh, that might be a time to pick one up cheaper. Uh, and also, we have found some more of our CDs that we made. And, oh, hey, just happened to have. Yes. Hey, there it is. How's that? This is that's for a guy awesome. that's never been in that podcast. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we'll have those for sale as well. Nice. Well, uh, what CD is that with uh, the ones that you have for sale? It's the only one we have. It's called... Okay. Carmen Carmonica Jazz Trio. Oh, how do you do this? There we go. Yeah. Okay. There you go. You sure you don't want to take lessons from me on how to do this? <laughs> Actually, we made this uh, CD uh, at a, in a church basement in Waterville, uh, First Presbyterian Church. And uh, a Showtime uh, member, now maybe ex-member or former member, Ben Salzman, Oh, yeah. uh, recorded us, and uh, Ben did a nice job with the recording, and then uh, Cosmo Castellano, our bass player, uh, tweaked the mix a little bit because he got background and that stuff, and we have our 
CD of uh, our, it's all standard jazz tunes except for one which I wrote. Uh, but yeah, that's the, the only CD that we have. Very cool. Awesome. And the order of the day, people, go out and get Carmen's new book. It started with a guitar. You can find it on Amazon, wherever you get your books. And if you are in the Utica, Rome area, you can get it at Off Center Records and uh, help support local. We support local around here. That's why we have Local Music Monday. Speaking of supporting Absolutely. local, support your local music. Justin, where are you playing this week? Uh, I'm playing tonight for Tellos with Sean. Uh, big Sexy at Port Tim there. Uh, we're playing tonight. Uh, I'm playing... Twice on Thursday, I play solo at Seven Hamlets in Westerland. Oh, cool place. And then I get done at 8.30. I have to make it down to Dick Smith's by, and, and be set up and ready to start playing by 9.30. So I got an hour to pack up, drive, set up, and play. And then uh, this is the first full weekend we've had off as a band in probably 10 years. Wow. Like, it's insane. I have no idea what I'm going to do with myself. <laughs> I have a Friday and a Saturday <laughs> off. It's insane. I'm sure your son will entertain you. Yeah, but then we play five times the next week, so we make up for it. Yes, you know? Of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. That being St. Pa- uh, Patrick's uh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving week. Thanksgiving week, yes. Yep. Wow, right on. You're busy, busy, man. Yeah. Um, real quick, I want to make mention we're still doing our food drive. It, we're picking up all the boxes tomorrow, so you got like a day to get some of your donations. And we're taking non-perishable food items and canned goods. And uh, we have a couple drop-off locations at Music More, Big Apple Music, Joey's at 307, Wisp Baking Company, both Utica Hemp locations, and Rocking Horse Tattoo. Uh, drop off your non-perishable food items or your canned goods there. There's a nice little box. You'll see our little logo, all this stuff in there. And uh, we appreciate everybody that has donated so far. We raised over 200 pounds of food oh, so far. We're going to roll this back out, too, for Christmas. But we want to get the food all in for Thanksgiving, and then we're going to roll it back out. But uh, shout-out to the Utica Cricket. Club and EJA moving for helping us out with the food drive. And we'll be rolling out the next one for Christmas with our friends over at 92.7 The Drive. So shout out to Genesee Joe and his crew over there. And don't forget this Saturday, there's a book signing book signing with Carmen over at Calabria Coffee. It's 52 Genesee Street in New Hartford. Back to where it all started him. Back into his, uh, his roots. Yeah. Back to his home turf, if you will. So, <laughs> Carmen, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Upgrade, the ultimate brain formula. Smarter, faster, focused, improved performance, increased mental clarity, suppress fatigue, combat stress. Try Upgrade, the ultimate brain formula today. Visit FreemanFormula.com and use promo code DISRUPTION for a 15% discount. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to contribute and help with the cost of the producing this podcast, you can hit our virtual tip jar on Venmo at XYTODA. Please subscribe on all our podcast platforms. Follow, like, and subscribe All Things Disruption Network on social media. And visit our website, disruptionnetwork.net.